The following is a Westminster Seminary, California morning devotion given by a guest speaker. The statements, views, and opinions presented in this message are those of the speaker and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Westminster Seminary, California. For more information about Westminster Seminary, California, visit us online at wscal.edu or call 888-480-8474. That's online, wscal.edu, or call 888-480-8474. One of the special treats we have during the spring semester is that the faculty invites several graduating seniors to give devotions here in chapel, and so it's my delight to introduce one of our graduating seniors, Ryan Thomas, who will be bringing the morning devotions today. So please come, Ryan. Thank you. It's good to be here with you guys. If you want to turn to Hosea 5, Hosea 5 will be in verses uh, from Hosea 5.10 through verse 6 of chapter 6. Hear now the word of the Lord. The princes of Judah have become like those who move the landmark. Upon them I will pour out my wrath like water. Ephraim is oppressed, crushed in judgment, because he is determined to go after filth. But I am like a moth to Ephraim and like dry rot to the house of Judah. When Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah his wound, then Ephraim went to Assyria and sent to the great king, but he is not able to cure you or heal your wound. For I will be like a lion to Ephraim and like a young lion to the house of Judah. I, even I, will tear and go away. I will carry off and no one shall rescue. I will return again to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face and in their distress earnestly seek me. Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down and he will bind us up. After two days he will revive us. On the third day he will raise us up that we may live before him. Let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes early away. Therefore I have hewn them by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth, and my judgment goes forth as a light. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Thus far the reading of God's word. Would you pray with me? Father, we come to you aware of our weakness and our frailty. Standing in the light of your holiness, we cower like Isaiah. Woe are we to stand before you. And yet in your goodness, you have called us here. You call us into your presence. You welcome us in the name of Christ. Help us to see this great truth of the gospel here in our text this morning, we pray. Illuminate it to us by your Holy Spirit. For it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Well, in a letter written to the Independent in 1993, Richard Dawkins, in his typical fashion, opined that science has eradicated smallpox. It can immunize against most previously deadly viruses, can kill most previously deadly bacteria. Theology has done nothing but talk of pestilence as the wages of sin. What has theology ever said that is not of the smallest use to anybody? 
If all the achievements of scientists were wiped out tomorrow, there would be no doctors, but which doctors? If all the achievements of theologians were wiped out tomorrow, would anyone notice the smallest difference? Over and against this assessment stands Hosea. Um, Dawkins' words are put a modern twist on the conversation, but Hosea really addresses the same issue. Whereas Dawkins fawns over the achievements of science, Hosea would have us say, we will never again say our God to the works of our hands, which comes from chapter 14 of his prophecy. And far surpassing Dawkins' distaste for religion is Hosea's disgust with sin. Now make no mistake, Hosea is not a fulminating fundamentalist. He isn't pitting science against religion, as Dawkins does. His concern is for things much bigger, much higher, much deeper than that which we can can touch or measure or weigh. You see, Hosea is concerned that we seek and savor the steadfast love of the Lord. He's concerned that we not only desire, but we delight in God's covenant faithfulness. And that is the big idea that we will be unpacking from this text today. And yet immediately we note a major obstacle to this goal. And in the first place, we can see the scandal of our crimes. Now the depth of this scandal, I don't think is immediately obvious to us from our text. We see the movement of landmarks. We see that Israel has made political treaties with a foreign power. These seem like trivial things, really. So what is it that makes these actions so scandalous? And if we remember from our classes, legal and personal are not mutually exclusive categories. We know this as we come to the divine covenants. They establish the most intimate relationships through their strong legal bonds. Take, for example, Deuteronomy 7.9. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. Covenant and love are side by side. They go hand in hand. And we, we, we hear this regularly, don't we? But if that's true, so is the inverse. To break the covenant is not merely a breach of contract. It's a rupture of a relationship. And the prophecy of Hosea leaves no doubt as to the deeply personal nature of our sin. To contrast this, we can take John, 1 John 3, 4, where John makes clear the legal dimension of our sin. He calls sin lawlessness. But in our twisted reason, corrupted by the fall, we, can, we run the risk every time we come to this verse of walking away as if we're Robin Hood. Outlaws, sure, but heroic ones. Generous thieves, philanthropic criminals. We can strut down the street after having sinned, just like Ocean's Eleven walking out of a casino that they've just pulled a heist. Too often, we glory in our sin. But Hosea decimates any such delusions that we may have. He begins his prophecy with a punch that keeps us reeling the whole way through. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to him, go, take for yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. In Hosea 2.4, he continues the charge, Upon her children, Israel's children, I will have no mercy, because they are children of whoredom. 
and their mother has played the whore. In chapter four, verse one, he takes up the covenant lawsuit. The Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. And these themes of steadfast love and faithfulness and knowledge of God will continue throughout his prophecy. The problem is, as we continually fall short, in verse 412, the spirit of whoredom has led them astray and they have left their God to play the whore. Hosea 5.4, their deeds do not permit them to return to their God, for the spirit of whoredom is within them and they know not the Lord. And it is this passages such as these that inform the moving of the landmark, that informed the fact that Israel has gone to make a political treaty is really essentially a turning of their backs upon their covenant Lord, upon their covenant husband. It is a betrayal, it is a personal affront, it is whoredom. Now legally sin is lawless rebellion, but relationally sin is nothing short of prostitution. And at the heart of both lies disloyalty. Sin is a violation of allegiance. It's rebellion, but infused with betrayal. To put it in the terms of Hosea 6-7, it's transgression that's marked by unfaithfulness. Back when I was 16, my dad bought me a Ford F-150, 1985 if I remember, maybe about $1,800. And it was nothing really that, that special other than me being 16. It had this like neon pink stripe down the side that could really only come out of the 80s. Uh, it had a camper where you could camp in the back uh, it, again, it was really nothing special, but I didn't care. For a 16-year-old mountain boy, this was the Cadillac of trucks. <laughs> but within three months, it lay on its side, totaled. Its 16-year-old driver, me, hanging by, in the air by a seat belt at the bottom of a snowy hill in someone's backyard. And in this, in that, earlier that morning, as it had snowed, and, and all, me and all my wisdom as a 16-year-old driver, it was not going slow enough around a turn. Uh, the, the turn went this way, the car went over the hill, and I rolled one and a quarter times. Rolling the truck was an accident. Sad, sure, my fault, absolutely. But the scandal of the whole thing was the alcohol that I had hidden in the back so that I could go out with my friends later that night and sin. The worst part about that incident wasn't the wrecked car, wasn't the glass strewn everywhere, it was the smell of beer as the car was pulled up the hillside. The CHP officer pulling it out of the car and walking over to me and asking whose it was. The look of shame on my dad's face. Not because of the car, not because I had crashed it, but because I had done what I shouldn't have done. I brought dishonor to my family. This is what we see here in this passage, what Hosea sets up and helps us to understand about our sin. It's a shameful, personal act. And as a result, there are curse sanctions opposed upon Israel, as there were curse sanctions opposed upon me for several months after that incident. And what I want us to see second in the second place, that from the scandal of our crime becomes the severity of the covenant curse. We see a threefold progression in the first several verses of our passage. God is like a moth or a grub or a larvae. He's, he's like rot to the house of Israel. It's a slow inward corruption that God allows our sin to fester 
And this in itself is a curse. It's a judgment. It's God letting sin run its course, hoping that we'll see this decay. Of course, we're told that in verse 13, Ephraim, Ephraim saw his sickness, but rather than turning to the Lord, he turned to Assyria. And so how does the Lord react in verse 14? He comes out like a lion. He tears, he rends, he strikes down. Calvin, commenting on this verse, said that after God has first gnawed, he will at length devour. After he was pricked, he will deeply wound. After he was struck, he is struck, he will wholly destroy. All this we bring on ourselves by our perverse attempts when we try to escape, seek escapes for ourselves. And finally, although it is judgment tempered by mercy, God withdraws. And in many ways, I find this the most terrifying. He leaves us in our sin. But he does so that we might turn to him. God's retreat is a call for his people to return. But I think the worst part about this passage before us is actually disguised as its best. And it comes to the question of how do we interpret this interlude of verses one through three in chapter six? How do we interpret this song of repentance that Israel sings? Some would call it a pseudo summons, false repentance. It's no remorse, there's no confession of sin. There seems to be presumption that God is in the business of extending grace. It's what he must do because he's God. And verse four, as its negative response, is confirmation of this for those who hold this view. The other option is true repentance. We do see here true repentance. And it answers verse 15, that the Lord will withdraw, that his people will come to him, and we see that response. One commentator said, it's a high point among the foothills of the prophecy from which we catch a tantalizing glimpse of the distant summit, which is the final chapter, which echoes these very words. Finally, there's a curious variation in the Septuagint, which actually puts these words into the mouth of God, which in a, in a way makes sense. All of our return to the Lord can only be by the movement of his spirit impelling us. There's no real obvious choice, but what I find curious about each of those options is how they exegete us, because they're all possible. We go through each of those, don't we? False repentance, half-hearted repentance, and what I find most terrifying, as I refer to about this passage, is the fact that this is real, heartfelt, genuine repentance on the part of the people, but it's insufficient. And verse four of chapter six makes this clear. God wonders what he will do with his people. And the thing is, our most heartfelt and most eager efforts are insufficient to make us stand before the Lord. So what will he do with us? I remember sitting in that CHP officer's car, contrite, humble, perhaps the most humble I've ever been in my life. But it didn't change the fact that I was guilty. It didn't matter how much remorse I felt, I stood condemned. And so do the people of God here, even in their most genuine return to the Lord. They need something else. There must be something else upon which they can stand. And this brings us finally to the sweetness of Christ's cure. In the face of the scandal of our crime, which calls upon us the severity of God's covenant curse, God has responded with the sweet cure of Christ. You see in verse six, the Lord desires steadfast love and covenant loyalty. 
and not just bare sacrifice. That's why our repentance, however sincere, is insufficient in itself. As if a, is, as, it's as if a spouse is trying to justify his involvement with a prostitute by saying, hey, I did the dishes. We have no ground upon which to stand. They are different categories when we come before the Lord. So he provides for us that steadfast love that we could not provide him ourselves. He gives us Christ. The Lord poured out his wrath upon him like water so that the landmark of his favor would never depart from us. Christ was forsaken and became a covenant curse so that we might be set free to pursue him. He was torn as God the lion went out and tore his people. Christ was torn that we might be healed. In the words of Isaiah, he was struck down, pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was heaped the chastisement that brought us peace, and by his wounds we are healed. He went forth from the grave on the third day. He rose up with the dawn and showers upon us his grace. We see that everywhere that we fall short in this passage, Christ was sufficient. And what a sweet remedy he was. The good news, friends, is that we do not sit under the same covenant as Israel. We sit under the new covenant. We stand on this side of the cross, the resurrection, the ascension, and Pentecost. You see, in Christ, the very curse of death becomes life to us. It reverses the very, the worst, the first, the, the, the chief of curses for our sin became the very means by which Christ redeemed us. And so curiously, this language of, of calling us to come, to repent, to return to the Lord, what was insufficient for us in the old covenant, we see in the language of Paul in Philippians 3, calls us to this end. Paul says in Philippians 3.12, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I've made this my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, I strain forward towards what lies ahead. I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And we have been set free to make this same pursuit, to return to God, to stand on the firm ground that Christ gives us, who is our all-sufficient and sweet cure for our sin. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the provision that you've given us in Christ, for not just the supremacy, but the sweetness of this new covenant and went to which you've called us in Christ's name. As we go out this day, would you help us to see and delight and share with the world this great message of redemption, that Christ is an all-sufficient Savior who has given us his covenant and steadfast love. We worship you for it, and we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Copyright 2020, Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format, provided that you do not alter the wording in any way and that you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to this document on our website is preferred.